0: Welcome to Brain Talk, a podcast about the latest thinking and research in neurology with a specific focus on epilepsy and other seizure-like disorders. The audio used in today's episode comes from an authorized recording of Stratus' live physician webinar featuring Dr. Trudy Pang and Dr. Richard Verrier and their presentation on the epileptic heart. This podcast does not include any of the visual elements that were presented and referred to throughout the webinar. To view the full video recording, you can visit our website at www.stratusneuro.com. Let's take a listen as Dr. Pang and Dr. Verrier introduce the epileptic heart and discuss some of the pathophysiology and diagnostic tools that can help when identifying this condition.
1: We are extremely fortunate to have not one, but uh, two of the leading experts uh, in this field, Both close associates and good friends of mine, Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Trudy Pang. She's an assistant professor of neurology at the Harvard Medical School and the director of clinical neurophysiology and the epilepsy fellowship programs at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Pang completed her neurology residency training at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Her clinical research interests include work on T-wave alternans. Status Epilepticus and Women's Health in Epilepsy. And our uh, second speaker is Dr. Richard Barrier, a, a, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, he received his PhD from the University of Virginia. Uh, he has investigated sudden cardiac death for more than three decades, having published more than 300 original articles. He is in, the inventor of 12 licensed patents for the diagnosis and treatment of heart rhythm abnormalities and prediction of sudden cardiac death. During the past nine years, he's focused attention on cardiac risk associated with chronic epilepsy in close collaborations with Professor Stephen Schachter, past president of AES, and in the past two years with Dr. Trudy Pang. Um, and they are both on BIDMC's Department of Neurology. Uh, Their joint publications in Epilepsia, Epilepsy and Behavior, and Neurology have broken new ground in the study of patients with epilepsy. So, without further ado, Dr. Pang.
2: Okay, so good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight um, with Dr. Slater and Dr. Verrier. We're excited to share with you the Epileptic Heart webinar. Um, this is the very first time that we're doing this webinar, and we're looking forward to sharing a lot of great information with you. So what do we mean? Um, some of us might be already familiar with this definition, but I'll just review it briefly with you. Um, this definition of SUDEP actually exclusively stipulates that the, these cases are, unrela- are unrelated to anything that's clearly uh trauma, drowning, a clear case of status, epilepticus, and at autopsy, um, the coroner has to feel confident that this is not due to any other obvious cause. And that any other obvious cause actually also includes cardiac ischemic disease or other toxic causes. So anybody with a clear cardiac etiology um, is automatically excluded from this definition of SUDEP. And as we know, typically patients are found prone in bed and uh, the uh, the classically um, identified risk factors are chronic epilepsy with generalized tonic-clonic seizures being the greatest predictor of SUDEP. And of course, patients who are taking multiple uh, medications who are male um, have had epilepsy for a long time since a young age and perhaps not taking their medications as consistently. Um, The etiology is still uh, unclear to us. There are several hypotheses, um, including respiratory abnormalities, could this be due to autonomic dysfunction, as well as a lethal cardiac arrhythmia, which we could not necessarily detect on autopsy. And there are central causes, including the cerebral shutdown involving complete dysfunction of the brainstem regulatory mechanisms. Now in the classic Mortimus study, these are patients who are admitted to the epilepsy monitoring unit for continuous EEG, and based on these ictal EEG recordings, it appears that SUDEP is a periictal event where patients have a generalist convulsive seizure, which then leads to respiratory failure and ultimate, ultimately cardiac failure. These are just a handful of cases that have been published uh, in the Mortimus study, however, Um, We know that in two-thirds of cases, there is no clear seizure, as in the case that I introduced in the beginning of the talk. Um, And in these cases, we still don't know what are the potential etiologies or factors that are playing into this entity. Now, what about sudden cardiac death? Um, It turns out that actually chronic epilepsy is closely related to a higher risk of cardiac disease. And we see that in the Amsterdam cardiac arrest uh, study, that the risk for certain cardiac death in patients with epilepsy is increased by at least threefold. And there is a higher incidence of myocardial infarction actually up to 4.8-fold compared to the general population based on results from the Stockholm Heart Study. And in a very large epidemiologic study, looking at sudden cardiac death uh, prospectively in the Oregon study, they found that up to 4.4% of those patients actually had a diagnosis of chronic epilepsy. If we were to translate these numbers um, into what happens uh, on a national level in the U.S., well, it it translates into over 16,000 patients per day and 44,000 Per year, and forty-four patients per day, in terms of those with epilepsy who sudden who suffer the uh, consequence of sudden cardiac death, and if you compare these cases with Sudep, they're actually about four times greater than the than the rate of Sudep currently recorded, at about thirty-six hundred per year. So sudden cardiac death is. Um, a little different in that compared to the general population and that patients generally are slightly younger. They're in the uh, 55 years of age range compared to the slightly older cohort of 69 years in the general population. Um, This leads us to the condition of the epileptic heart, which is defined as a heart and coronary vasculature damaged by chronic epilepsy as a result of repeated surges in catecholamines and hypoxemia leading to both electrical and mechanical dysfunction. And Dr. Verrier uh, is gonna go over in detail uh, the mechanisms and the pathophysiology that play into this, uh, at this uh, clinical condition. Um, and so what we postulate is that over time with the consequences of repeated seizures we see that there is an acceleration of heart disease and there's an overall increased propensity to cardiac disease and thus sudden cardiac death. And although patients are still in the middle age range, typically above 40, the mean age of 55 years is, as you can see, younger than the uh, typical uh, age cohort that we see in patients without epilepsy. And so uh, we're very excited to share this diagram, this Venn diagram, which capitulates um, the concept in our minds of what exactly is happening to the overall epilepsy population. Um, we can see in the blue uh, Venn diag- blue portion of the Venn diagram uh, that indicates SUDEP is about 36,000, uh, 3,600 per year. But when we talk about sudden cardiac death in the larger uh, beige-colored circle, it's about uh, 16,000, about four times greater. And although there is a slight overlap between these two entities, um, the sudden cardiac death population is much greater and requires much greater attention than what we have been given so far. And we need to uh, understand further what exactly is contributing to this population. In the bottom right of the diagram, we, uh, we will talk about other factors that can play into this, uh, specifically with anti-seizure medicines that are meant to reduce seizures, but uh, as I will introduce later, these can have uh, particular influences on lipid profiles and sodium channel blocking agents can potentially um, increase one's uh, risk of arrhythmia. And then in the top left, um, these factors can also be modulated by other features of the, uh, of one's physiology, perhaps increasing pa- parasympathetic uh, output or decreasing sympathetic uh, influence, um, decreasing seizures, all of which can potentially influence uh, a person's cardiac electrical function and stability overall. And these factors are on the progression of time, as you can see on the bottom uh, arrow. The natural history of aging and progression, natural progression of cardiac disease, as well as epilepsy over time can modulate all of these risk factors. So next I will let Dr. Verrier discuss the pathophysiology of the epileptic
3: heart. Thank you, Dr. Peng. Um, this figure is um, in our review article and shows um, the information and insights we've gathered from the literature over the past more than 10 years. And what is becoming apparent is is that at the top in box, you'll see that the repeated hypoxemia and myocardial ischemia that occurs during seizures and particularly the cardiotoxic effects of excessive catecholamines um, exerts a toll on the heart and coronary vasculature we will um, discuss uh, VNS protection, vagus vet- nerve stimulation, which can counter a number of these adverse sequelae. And with the left arrow, uh, you see the myocardial stunning. There's a neurogenic stunning that can occur in result of excess catecholamines. This could be an acute response, suppressing an ejection fraction, or uh, over time, as you see in the middle arrow, There are uh, changes in cardiac myocytes, this this basic cellular structure of the heart, leading to fibrosis and uh, contraction band patterns. And also the coronaries uh, can be damaged, uh, causing inflammation. And that also leads to ischemia. And with the right ascending arrow, there's a very important concept of age accelerated atherosclerosis This can be detected with echocardiography of the carotid arteries, which are thickened and uh, prematurely in patients with chronic epilepsy. And um, this pattern of thickening uh, can be uh, worsened by certain um, anti-epileptic medications, which Dr. Peng will be discussing. With these structural changes in the heart, you see the bottom box there, there are important uh, effects on cardiac electrical stability. And there's a pattern which we refer to T wave alternance where you see there's an A form of the beat and the B form. Basically, this is an oscillation, which we call the Downs macabre of repolarization of the heart that can degenerate into ventricular fibrillation. Hence this uh, schema that is what led us to formulate the definition of epileptic heart below with Dr. Dr. Peng has discussed. To give you a frame of reference, this is the pattern uh, of uh, the main factors leading to sudden cardiac death. Generally, we think in the terms as we think in the terms of coronary artery disease. But as you are learning, there is a reminiscent pattern that occurs prematurely in the context of chronic epilepsy. On the left is the Less common causes, about 5% are primary electrical derangement. There may be some overlap in epilepsy, such as the Long QT syndrome, derangement in late sodium, which uh, can um, be a factor in genetic factor in epilepsy and also can affect repolarization of the heart. But then if you look in the middle, uh, we look at structural changes, the cardiomyopathy, where the structure of the heart can be altered, thickening, in the case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and dilated cardiomyopathy. One of the very exciting developments which has ensued in the past few years uh, echocardiographic measurements of the heart in patients with chronic epilepsy. And it's becoming apparent that the heart uh, stiffens um, over time in some patients with seizures. uh, The echo, which can be done routinely, is picking up. Um, cues as to these structural changes. Also very important is the atria in patients with chronic epilepsy become enlarged. And this sets the stage for atrial fibrillation. And I believe this is an underappreciated condition in epilepsy that because of structural change in the atria and their enlargement, there may be a greater incidence of atrial fibrillation than has been here for recognized. And on the right uh, panels, the main culprit of risk for sudden cardiac death is coronary artery disease, and about 80% of cases in the setting of CID uh, accounts for risk for arrhythmia. The other important concept that I'd like to emphasize is that sudden death is a triggered event. There's stage setting with changes in, in myocardium, coronary vasculature, but conditions such as behavioral stress, or physical activity, or in this case, seizures, in the vulnerable substrate can lead to sudden arrhythmic death. And you see below the tracings, typical sequelae of ventricular tachycardia leading to ventricular fibrillation, which can only be terminated with counter shock. This is a very important study involving a survey of more than 95,000 patients. And as you can see, the age group if you look at 45 to 64, there's a, ma- a major separation between uh, risk of um, cardiac disease in patients with chronic epilepsy compared to their counterparts without epilepsy. And uh, as the case that Dr. Peng illustrated, was 48 years old. So once a patient traverses the 40 to 45-year period, um, a strong attention. Uh, on the heart's health uh, is required. And also on the right set of bar graphs, the point is those with relatively low uh, financial income are greater risk. This may relate to diet, poor diet, uh, and um, a, a greater predisposition accordingly to coronary artery disease, as well as less ready access to medications. So it's in a sense it's a double hit uh, for those in the lower income uh, stratum. This is a case of a 50-year-old woman uh, admitted to the Brigham Hospital uh, EMU, and at the end of a right temporal low seizure, she developed the arrhythmia that you see below, uh, now familiar of a ventricular tachycardia requiring countershock. Had this patient been outside the hospital. Uh, she would not have survived. What is also interesting is that she was on carbamazepine, cabem- and this is a sodium channel blocker. Uh, Though it was not stated, would uh, be curious to know when she was discharged, was that medication discontinued? But it is a culprit agent that may have been a factor in this patient's event. This is a case of a 75-year-old woman, again, um, who had... Uh, um, history of uh, general tonic-clonic seizures, and she at breakfast she had a seizure, then was admitted to the hospital. And here you see not only a rapid ventricular tachyarrhythmia, but on the left at admission her ejection fraction was only thirty percent. Normally, ejection fraction fifty to should be fifty-five or sixty percent of the blood is ejected from the ventricles with each beat. So half, so this was a major, what we call neurogenic stunning, a tucosubo like condition. Excuse me. So um, the, uh, and it required four days uh, to recover. So this may go on uh, recurrently and uh, leading to um, a tale of damage in, in the heart of a with chronic epilepsy. Now I want to turn to the new tools which um, we've developed um, to help detect uh, the condition of the epileptic heart. And the first ref- um, is the what we refer to T-wave alternance, which I'll illustrate shortly, uh, is a phenomenon that can be detected in a routine electrocardiogram. And also the development of multi-day EKG patches, which are patient-friendly and can be used to record for weeks the electrocardiogram and provides opportunity for detecting um, events um, of a translation in terms of cardiac changes. So T-Wave alternans is an established marker of risk of sudden cardiac death um, that has been in use now for nearly a decade. It's FDA cleared and CMS reimbursed. And um, it's recommended for use whenever there's a suspicion of risk for life-threatening arrhythmias and it represents a beat-to-beat fluctuation in the amplitude and shape of the ST segment and T wave. So there's an ABA oscillation, which is indicative of non-uniformity of repolarization. Basically, when the heart is heterogeneously uh, activated and inactivated, and this is thought to be due to structural changes in the heart, as you saw the fibrosis, as well as changes in calcium. And so there is a direct link between this phenomenon and susceptibility to fibrillation in patients with various conditions, um, including myocardial infarction and heart failure. This is uh, the phenomenon. Uh, This is a standard of of ventricular precordial lead. Uh, And you can see, if you look very carefully, there's an A form with a sloping shoulder of the ascending limb of the T wave, a more steeper ascending limb and B, AB, and it becomes particularly apparent when the computer superimposes or aligns a QRS, and you can see an A and a B pattern, a separation. The greater that separation, the greater risk for sudden rhythmic death. This is a patient who had 106 microvolts during this test, and unfortunately died a year thereafter. So that is a... um, unstable condition, which is important to evaluate um, in patients with epilepsy. And this is, shows the, the basic scheme for the pattern. It conceptually straightforward, although signal processing is quite, quite elaborate. Simply group the A forms and the B forms. You see the second level of tracings. Then they are averaged, the A and the B, and then superimposed. And then you can readily detect a difference when it's present and this is in the range of microvolts. This is what we refer to as a ladder of risk which we're putting together for various disease conditions. We've studied extensively stable corner disease um, as you can see it's um, the blue bar is a little over 20. So it doesn't uh, resolve CAD, doesn't carry much risk. There's a cut point of abnormality which we use, which is 47 microvolts. Now, if you look at a patient uh, with cardiomyopathies, uh, and non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, particularly uh, a risk situation, it traverses this uh, horizontal line of abnormality. In patients with myocardial infarction, we found that those, when we measured the Holter uh, 30 days after myocardial infarction and followed them up for approximately two years, those who succumbed to sudden death had elevated alternance in their early Holter monitoring, and patients experienced an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Those who had spontaneous ventricular tachycardia, um, you can see that the level is nearly 70 percent at 70 microvolt. What was very striking to us is when we began with uh, Dr. Schachter and, and now with Dr. Pang. Is how high alternance levels are in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. It's also it's in the same range as, as STEMI, which is quite alarming that this speaks to the significant impact of heart disease in the context of epilepsy, introducing risks for life-threatening arrhythmias. And this is a continuum. So we have the abnormality of 47 microvolts, severely abnormal. As you see on the left, is 60 microvolts. And for each increment of T-wave alternates, increase 20 microvolts, indicates a greater than 58% increase in risk. So it's very uh, important to look at interventions that uh, flatten this arrow below the uh, cut point of abnormality. Now, we are looking um, and examining in detail the electrocardiogram for um, what we refer to as EKG footprints of the epileptic heart condition and uh, perhaps someday would be uh, recognized as a syndrome. Um, in the 12 ED, standard 12 EDKG, one can pick up um, uh, atrial fibrillation. And we believe that the substrate for this, as I discussed earlier, Uh, It it includes atrial enlargement and um, changes in the structure um, of the atrium. Another uh, condition is non-uniformities of repolarization, which can be measured with um, uh, QT intervals from several leads and up to 30% of patients who have have epilepsy of repolarization abnormalities. The bottom one is also quite important. That is, the presence of Q-waves in the electrocardiogram may reflect a prior myocardial infarction. And this is one of the reasons we advocate 12 lead EKGs, particularly in patients who are 40 and older, and certainly as routine practice when they're admitted to EMU, given the fact that there's nearly a five-fold increase in risk for sudden cardiac death in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. So we can use uh, will be turning momentarily to the multi-day EKG patches so you can go beyond a single a snapshot of a 12-liter EKG which increases the ability to detect proxysmal or episodic events such as AF, also seizures, premature beats, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, and also tachyarrhythmias and T-wave alternates. And so we've been quite excited about this um, straightforward but potentially very powerful um, type of recording uh, device called a patch which is fairly larger than a big band-aid which can be placed on the chest and uh, you can see uh, two public recent publications where we discussed uh, 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 the, the types of patches where which are available and the benefits that they can afford and uh, it's um, impressive to see where it all began. This is uh, Dr. Hol, uh, Jeff Holter, who is the uh, father of this technology, and you see this heavy thing on his back. That's a Holter, but that's a sanded EKG uh, recording device where he had the wisdom to think, to recognize that there are triggers of arrhythmias and therefore being able to record uh, EKGs during daily activities such as exercise or uh, behavioral stress or circadian factors. So s- this uh, occurred over 70 years ago and it weighed 85 pounds. And now you see where we are. These comfortable patches, which are is, uh, essentially equivalent. And these are patches which uh, Stratus uh, is using in, in a number of, the, of uh, their patients where it does not require wires, uh, can be up to three channels, comfortable, We can actually swim in a pool, um, go down to six feet, and the recordings continue and the patch remains stable. So this is a big advance in terms of trying to uh, increase the window of monitoring of electrocardiographic changes. And these devices have also uh, telemetry capabilities so that they can communicate with um, secure database and healthcare provider can interrogate so a button can be activated if there are symptoms and real-time can be accessed the signal. Also, eventually could communicate with the headset, so they have much better synchrony of the EKG and the um, electroencephalographic graphic recording. And this shows the, the uh, tremendous resolution of the patch. It's a XIO patch compared to a LEAD1 lead in standard EMU latest and natus. System during a partial seizure, you see above with the, I mean, below the kind of recording that you get with a wire, and it's basically a hash. And then on the right, there are runs of couplets uh, of premature beats, which are very important, but uh, that can be detected with clearly with the patch, but um, might be ignored as noise in the standard recording system with wire, as is the case below. This is um, a device that is routinely placed for um, seizure control in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. Now, there's an interesting story. So here's the device goes below the patch, it's a wire, and then it goes to the neck, and you can see um, the um, uh, increased um, amplification. uh, Close to the head is a negative electrode, next to it is positive electrons. So simulations are provided to suppress seizure and there's been you know, more than 100,000 patients have received and is a device with Livanova device but um, that shows um, the standard capacity uh, system that suppresses seizure. Now when we first began I found this interesting. The rationale of the epileptologist was to, to place this on the left vagus nerve. Uh, To optimize seizure suppression, but to minimize cardiac effects. Now as it turns out, the left vagus has a very powerful influence on the left ventricle. So when we um, um, started a series of experiments to see what uh, VNS might do to uh, cardiac electrical stability in the form of T wave alternans, we found that um, This is a a series, it was the E36 series, a 28 patient internationally conducted um, and recordings at one week before and three weeks following VNS. Medications were unchanged and you see a very dramatic reduction in T-wave alternans um, with VNS. Um, And the alternans level, which was well above the 47 micro cut point, decreased to 40 below the, the cut point of abnormality. So uh, this shows an actual uh, recording in which a patient with pre-VNS is 67 microvolts and post-VNS was 21 microvolts. Uh, clearly the A form and the B form were brought closer together so there was minimal alternance after VNS stimulation. And um, we also asked, like, what was the effect just, uh, Indirectly through suppressing seizure, but um, or directly to neurocardiac interaction, and we got an insight on this problem uh, in patients with, which we were studying independently from the Anthem Heart Failure Study, uh, where we stimulated uh, had chronic vagus stimulation, and you can see prior to implantation, the and this is three uh, representative patients the levels were quite high, 97, 71, 94. And after VNS, it was reduced very markedly in two of the three cases below the 47 microvolt cut point. And, in what, and the third patient was reduced nearly by half. So there we, um, this evidence suggests that there's dual protection of VNS in patient and redu- reducing seizure Neurocardiac interactions, opposing sympathetic activity, improving baroreceptor sensitivity, and also reduces cell death, cardiac cell death, and is anti-inflammatory. And this is quite different from the anti-epileptic medications, which have the side effects which we've discussed. And it's important to recognize that these effects are long-lasting. We know that in respect to seizure, the effects have been um, significant. Effects have been observed in a number of studies, up to 12 years. And in our cardiac studies of heart failure patient, we know that it lasts at least three years. So there's a sustained benefit of VNS with minimal side effects and with very strong backing in terms of cardioprotective mechanisms. So our summary for this part is that um, patients with drug-resistant epilepsy uh, develop a, a heart condition which can be detected in a growing number of ways. And a very important one for the electrocardiogram, uh, in which we can study, quantify the effects on T-wave ends, um, identifying risk for life-threatening arrhythmias. The patches can be useful, a patient-friendly worn both in EMU at home, and that may open up new avenues for detecting uh, uh, um, spurious effects. Um, or episodic effects, I should say, of seizure, cardiac electrical instability, and that vagus nerve stimulation confers a double benefit of reducing seizures and protecting the heart.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Stratus, the leading provider of ambulatory in-home video EEG testing. For more information about Stratus, please visit our website at www.stratusneuro.com.